Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. I'm David Russell here at Faith Unaltered. Welcome to the show. Tonight is going to be a special night because it's an open mic night. It's a night for all of you, whoever's watching, that want to come on to be able to come on and share your thoughts. Um, I'm your host, David Russell, again with my co-host, Dale Glover. How you doing, Dale? Hey, David. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, man. Davidson said he's going to come as soon as he's out of traffic, but we're going to wait for him, but... Other than that, how you been, man? Yeah, I've been good. Uh, like I said, uh, taking taking a rest from the podcast, trying trying to do a lot less, uh, one a week for for the month of July here, and yeah. Um, so Priscilla's asking, will Tyler be on tonight? Nope, Tyler is on hiatus during yep. the month of July. So, yep. Yep. If you're a Tyler fan, you're not going to get him tonight. <laughs> yeah, he's on with his uh, he's with his wife right now in an amusement park. And he's spending time with her because she is 12 weeks pregnant. So anyways, <clears throat> what, what else What else is going on, Dale? Uh, nothing. Uh, just preparing yeah. for my debate with Jordan on the 28th on how we identify miracles. Um, so, yeah, I know you've been preparing hard for your debate with <laughs> yeah. uh, Louis Dizon coming up. Yeah, Catholic versus Protestant, of course, and that's going to be on the intercession of the saints, which I'm excited for. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's been been a crazy week. Uh, we found out that my wife actually broke her collarbone and hurt the discs in her neck up top. So she's in a lot of pain, so I've been basically taking care of her. And then the two little ones came down with a fever, so I've been you know, giving them medicine and keeping everybody uh, alive around here. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha gotcha yeah it's yeah like i said the um, only thing we can do is pray for you kind of thing and, and your family you guys are going through a lot and stuff like that so yeah all, i wish you guys all the best and like god's will be done yeah thanks man thanks but yeah so it's topic tonight is open mic night now dale i know you had one you, you know you had a question that you're going to ask and you're going to kick off the topic you want to kick off that topic now uh, sure. Yeah. So we, I had um, a couple of audience members. So there's the vulture. He might join himself later. So I'm going to hold off on asking his question. But um, we did have a fan who was a, a non-Christian, but a former Hindu had, who has been persuaded by my hard work regarding the resurrection and the shroud. Uh, so he's really interested in Christianity. But um, he was listening to the show with Travis and Ben Watkins on the moral argument for God. And um, he's interested in doing a, a future show with us. But in the meantime, for this show, he has a question that he thinks is kind of a refutation for the William Lane Craig version of the moral argument. Um, so he says, look, uh, look, if, if God does ground objective morality, um, then why is it that, you know, people have so many different moral values and different moral opinions? There's this uh, moral disagreement. If if God has, you know, he's the source of morality and he's designed us to be moral creatures, uh, moral values and, and opinions should be universal. So uh, that's that's kind of his question for our live show. How do we deal with that moral disagreement? I'll, I'll let you give your uh, your answer first, since you, <laughs> it's your topic. <laughs> this is Omar's topic, right? So Yeah, Omar's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so so I obviously do take William Lane Craig's view that God is the grounding of uh, objective moral values 
and duties. Um, so they are they are objective in the sense that, well, it's it's not based on on arbitrary will, not even God's arbitrary will. It's grounded in what he is, his ontological moral nature, which just by necessity is essential, essentially moral perfection. Um, so how do we deal with moral disagreement in that case? Well, this is kind of where epistemology comes in and we have to enter in the problem of sin, right? Um, now, uh, what's his name? Omar thinks that well, because there's different opinions, that kind of makes it all just subjective based on human subjects and stuff. But that, I don't think that that follows because there's disagreement on everything, even objective science. There are flat earthers for crying out loud. That doesn't mean that, oh, there's not a, an actual fact. What is Norton? Can you guys still hear me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Dale. Yeah. Okay, cool. Sorry, Norton's giving me stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think the fact that there's disagreement in and of itself proves the objectivity or subjectivity of the moral truths or values themselves. Um, however, it is true that we do have this disagreements, and that's where Christians have this the the answer, the fall, which is sin, which has corrupted and impaired our faculties, including our moral faculties, and therefore we come to different opinions and you know philosophers have, have identified three areas of disagreement so we can disagree a lot of times on the factual the facts that are relevant to the moral situation and I think most of moral disagreements come down to that level but there's also disagreements on the moral values um, especially when there's a conflict you know what which moral value or principle is more weighty than another so for example in abortion Someone might say, um, well, the principle to autonomy is more important than the principle of life. Uh, and other people would say vice versa. So there can be disagreements there. Um, so yeah, that, and it, that's my answer is, is it's sin. We, we would expect under the Christian worldview, at least, we would expect there to be moral disagreement because we've chosen to have our faculties impaired by sin. Right on, right on. I'm looking for my answer. So keep talking <laughs> uh, where you at okay well, uh, well that's that's pretty much my my answer for it um, he doesn't obviously we're gonna be doing a show show with him so we'll be getting into a lot more detail but um, in terms of his objections there but so he's yeah. really he's really bent on the fact that people don't agree what the morals are I mean I guess a lot of that comes to the autonomy of the being too. Like you said, there's, there's uh, obviously um, you think that morality is a rational enterprise, right? So um, I think that it actually goes to show that um, God exists because we all disagree that we are moral agents and we do have the standard of good that we're reaching to. Right. So um, I would say that because it's a rational enterprise and humans, are constantly bickering and disagreeing, then it has to it, it has to be something different, some other rational source is necessary, right? So, um, it, my argument would is kind of like a IP's argument. I did a um um a, an argument that was that is similar to his, but I think it addresses the fact that uh you know um morality is a rational enterprise it's as and it's as foundational and intuitive as uh as uh what's it called um like just 
certain epistemological, epistemological truths that we take for granted. So like when me and you are talking, you're expecting me to just naturally, intuitively to like follow a certain ethic of, of discussion. Right. So I think it's, I think it's that foundational and I just failed, failed my list here. So, um, I would, IP's argument is really good here. Um, morality is a rational inter enterprise. Moral realism is true, meaning moral facts and duties exist. The moral problems and disagreements among humans are too much for us to assume moral facts and duties are grounded in a human source of rationality. Um, and premise four is moral facts and duties are grounded in a necessary rational source, and we call that source God. Gotcha. So that would that would be mine, um, my answer. So, yeah, yeah, sound, sounds. Good. And I, yeah. like I said, I, I think it I think it goes to show that you know um, the fact that we have these you know there's a bunch of reasons why I think it's it, it's a good argument, but I don't have my my total notes here for it. I don't want to speak no, out no, of turn, right. but. Fair yeah, enough. cultural differences on, on morality are not typically real moral differences, but factual differences too. So that would explain, like, you know, why all of us have this sense that that murdering someone is wrong, right? Now you'll be like, well, people take their babies and they and they kill them, but then there's usually a, a factual problem that that is, you know, ensconced in that, right? So uh, the stuff we violate is because we have some factual. Uh, uh, disconnect, right? So when you have like the people burying their their deformed children under uh, a temple, one of their temples, because they think they're monsters, it's not the fact that they don't think killing the murdering is wrong. It's the fact that they think that those kids are monsters, and you know that's where you have to say no. There's actual reason why this person's deformed. It's not a monster. It's just somebody with uh, handicap issues. You know, so yeah, yeah. It, and I, that's one of the things that I think is. Uh, um, you know, it uh, goes into it as well. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I, I do believe myself that the majority of moral disagreements are based on diff factual differences between people for the most part. But I do recognize there there are genuine valuational differences. I mean, we, I've I've met some uh, people online, like some some atheists and stuff, who just have different values uh, or prioritize. Uh, certain values over over that so the sin can corrupt on the valuational level too but i i do admit that's a lot less common i think um to explain moral differences yeah and i think i think like once uh factual errors like that are corrected or or you know um morality in like even the different cultures they converge so i think convergence is a big deal so I, um, I think convergence is also, um, uh, a, you know, a, a good proof for more realism. Gotcha. I see Josh in the comments. So I'm just giving yep. the link for anyone yep. who wants to join in. It's a live mic. So if you have questions, me and David have prepared our own list of questions. So we'll, we'll just go ahead. But here's Josh entering. There he is. There he is. What's up, guys? What's up, buddy? How you doing? Doing all right. All right, so so we're going to get your, your take on this. Go ahead, uh, Dale. Tell them what the question is. Yeah, so Omar Fakuri, who's uh, leaning towards Christianity, he wants to do a show with us on the moral argument. Um, okay. But for right now in the live chat, he's he's just asking us about 
look, if, if what you say is true, if morals are objective and they're grounded in God's nature, why on God's green earth is there moral disagreement? We should all have a common sense of morality or um, common understanding of what is moral or not. Mm. So okay, your... so the, the question is, why is there why is there different takes on morality? Yeah. Okay. Um, boy, that's an intro. Um, well, <laughs> welcome aboard. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a good question, though. I without without sounding like I'm trying to be patronizing, I think there's there's very little reason to think that there wouldn't be differences in the application or understanding of morality, given that our it, a lot of what we understand morality to be, especially on that experiential level, is built around our expectations. And all, all our, our experiences are rather different and kind of idiosyncratic. And so our views on morality, I think, are going to match our experiences. Um, but in a grander sense, there has to be something other than my experience and my opinion to make sense of those differing claims or those differing opinions on morality. I think what makes sense of the differences is, is in the more immediate sense, that difference in expectation because of our experiences, but also because at different times, different things were necessary. Um, and what I mean by that is you wouldn't necessarily, um, you know, cut off the hands of the town thief. But if the town was only 40 people and that was the only preventative medicine, let's say, to ensure that nobody else got ripped off and that this guy wasn't just going to go to the next town and do the same thing, then punishment requires a more finality kind of, um, you know, aspect to it rather than just, a, um, you know, like putting them in, in jail or um, some kind of, you know, fine or something like that. Um, I, I think these things are, are developmental in our implementation, but I think that you'd be hard pressed to find a culture that's really excited about people who deceive their best friends and hate their neighbors. Um, I, I just don't think that we defer that much, to be honest with you. Okay. Okay. Right. Fair enough. Well, so, okay. so you're, you're a proponent of like, uh, once like, certain things are cleared up or like once we discover certain things like even intuitively humanity's morals kind of converge they well they do converge i would say that we're a bit especially in america in the western world we're a bit of a melting pot um but to use an example that c.s lewis used in in this exact same question uh previously as somebody was saying uh don't you think that we're moral now because we're not executing witches uh and he would say something like well to be honest with you we don't believe there are witches and you wouldn't say that somebody is more moral for not setting mouse traps in their house if they didn't believe they had any mice. And right. so it's it, but but if witches were real and people really were cursing their neighbors, bringing bad weather or killing children in the community, you would definitely bring bring some harsh punishment on those people. And it wouldn't be a second thought if anybody actually thought that was what was happening, then we wouldn't be at all shocked yeah. by the kind of, you know, really direct final measures that you would take with somebody that was doing something that egregious. I think we all agree that if somebody was perpetrating something of great evil, that they should be stopped, you know? And, and I think, I think oftentimes we defer not on what evil needs to be stopped, but on what we should do about it. Yeah. Dale. Uh, yeah. La I guess last, last word on this, I don't see any follow-up questions in the chat or anything. So, um, uh, what a, last thing I want to say is, so this is not really about his question, but 
it is something that came up in the debate we had with Ben and Travis, and this this distinction between objective and subjective mor uh, morality and stuff like that, moral truths. Um, I prefer to use to argue for necessary moral truths, which is something I noticed uh, Ben was uh, arguing for as well, um, and stuff like that. So. I think that was a great look. Are these moral truths logically necessary? Um, and are they true in every possible world and stuff like that? That I think that's what I would more argue for. Um, but, you know, William Lane Craig uses, as long as you define your terms by objective, I think it's fine. The only thing is for, for me, as I kind of mentioned in that debate, moral values are grounded in a subject. They are grounded in God and namely his nature and stuff. So it, it, might get confusing there unless you define your terms what you mean by objective um so yeah that's my final thought on this question all right we're ready to move on ready to move on yeah you got something else dale are you wait or is it just Let omar me. we're waiting for um no so uh, uh the vulture if you're listening feel free to join at any time and we'll post up the link but while we're waiting for that i'll ask one of my questions for the group um okay so it's let me get your guys opinion what are you guys in the mood for uh kind of a practical christian thing or uh something about the resurrection of jesus anything you want dale <laughs> okay, i'm gonna ask the resurrection thing so all right good um okay so i had uh an, an interesting uh christian philosopher named scott hill who presented to um the master students at my university and he had an interesting thesis type thing where he has the quantum theory of the resurrection. So not getting into quantum details, but basically that he believes that when Jesus died, uh, his body, his body uh, or molecules were obliterated or whatever. Uh, but then it was in a state of superimposition, meaning that it was both alive and dead at the same time. And then at the moment of resurrection, quantum collapse happened, and that's how he got his resurrection body back. Um, so it's a very specific uh, theory, and I want to, uh, yeah, uh, I have my opinions on it. I disagree with it, definitely, but uh, <laughs> wanted to hear what you guys' thoughts on that theory. The quantum collapse notion of the resurrection, is there any merit to this? I don't think so because i think for a resurrected body i mean something uh something new is happening you know i mean it's not just like a resuscitated body you know um one of the things you said were uh like he got his resurrected body back i don't think that's the case i think that his his body was just transformed and glorified you know and uh you know i don't know it's, it's an interesting question I'll let Josh uh, take a stab at it. Okay, so for forgive my layman ignorance. What I I don't I don't necessarily understand what the connection between quantum collapse, if I'm understanding that correctly, would be what happens when the observer is actively observing the 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 interaction of the electrons as they're going through like the double slit experiment kind of thing am i following yeah yeah exactly. okay so then jesus's body was like those electrons in two different formats 
It, it, no. Like I, I really, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand what parallel <laughs> let, they're thinking is. is let me, there. Here, let me put this on the screen. So this is his abstract in his own words, just because I, I, I didn't research into this uh, for a long time. But um, okay, so he goes for this um, quantum mechanics. Obviously, one of the things is he's assuming materialism, right? He's trying to appeal to. Mm -hmm. Well, look, even at, even an atheist, you can believe in the resurrection too through this mechanism of superposition. Um, so on the so basically on the highest intensity branch of that superposition, Jesus' body would fall apart and his body would continue to decay and you know just evaporate away. The atoms would leave through decay. But there's also a low intensity branch on which this never happens, and his body remains intact. And then through quantum collapse, that becomes the the body that Jesus has at the moment of the resurrection of the dead. Um, so yeah, that in a nutshell is what I think his theory is. But yeah, I kind of gave away my one of my critiques is that I, no the 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 Bible presupposes a continuity of identity. That's the whole notion of what goes to sleep is the same body that arises, right? It's it's not some different body on a different quantum um, quantum branch or whatever you want to say, right? Um, and okay. it. it and it's also missing the entire point that I think it, there's dualism, right? Death, death is a soul separating from the body, and then it it becomes re-entrenched in that body. That's what we call resurrection. So, those are kind of my theological objections to this. So. I I think I think the reason why I wouldn't want to entertain that idea too too far is primarily because it seems to indicate that you can have something that is both dead and not dead simultaneously, uh -huh. which seems kind of like, it's almost like, uh, um, you know, um, what's that guy's name wrote the book about, uh, uh, the Schrodinger, Schrodinger's cat, right? Uh, no, 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 no. It's uh, much newer. Uh, the, the guy that wrote the book on the big bang and claimed that there was nothing, but defined nothing as something. Or it's about Kraus. Yeah. Kraus. Yeah. There you go. That I think I feel like this falls along the same lines of error is defining death as something other than dying, right? Like that that something in his body had to be something different than all of the other instances of an organic body becoming deceased, right? And the scripture yeah. talks about things like, uh, you know, in James it says, "Faith is faith without works is dead." Like the body without the spirit is dead. I don't I don't think he's necessarily thinking in biological categories at that point. Um, maybe if this becomes something that we can view as an explanatory mechanism, um, I think even if you explained how a body that was dead is no longer dead, I don't think you're really aiming at why the body ceased to be dead. Um, and and I'm I think I think maybe the the a question that I would have to clarify from this person if I was able to talk to them or maybe you know, can they distinguish between resurrection and reanimation? Because this sounds more like Frankenstein than anything. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I, I think, yeah. I just met him at the conference. So like, I don't know him personally and stuff, but. Oh, got him. Okay. Gotcha. I, yeah. Like his, his, he's, his whole thing is, look, I, I want to appeal to atheists and, uh, and materialists under this material. You can be a hardcore materialist and still believe in the resurrection. Apparently. See, so I, I have I have fundamental problem with that anyway, but that's that's more so because of some of my my understanding of what the scripture is, rather than whether or not I think there's a mechanical 
causal explanation of how something happened. Um, I just don't think that that's what scripture is primarily concerned about. And so if we, it's, I, it's an old saying that I learned from one of my previous pastors that whatever you hook them with, you got to keep them with. And I feel like that's the wrong bait. Yeah. I think the resurrection was a supernatural, not materialist yeah. or natural explanation. And I, the way I see miracles of God, at least of the supernatural variety, these are what philosophers of action call basic actions, just like we have basic beliefs, right, Jay Dyer? Uh, we also have basic actions, and that's what uh, miracles are of God. When he's inputting a supernatural event into the system, they're just basic actions. There aren't. It's inappropriate to ask for what are the intervening mechanisms. So, yeah, I agree right. with you, Josh, on that. Well, I think that's also good. it can be likened to the fact that, like, okay, if you want to get technical, let's think about the virgin birth. Being born isn't a miracle. It was the conception that was a miracle. The gestation and the birth were absolutely normal. Yeah. Like completely normal, causative, like change. Everything was exactly the way you would expect given a fertilized egg. It was the fertilization of the egg, like you said, in putting new information into the event that God did. We don't have a causal mechanism for that because the normal one that would be available to us has been revoked by by way of it being a miracle in the first place. Uh -huh. You know, like the, the water turning to wine. Water always turns to wine by way of the vine. But God usurped this need. And I don't I just like I feel like our trying to reduce that to material causation is missing the point. I agree. Well, let's talk about wine, Josh. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we have a wine expert. To tell us turn water uh, into wine. It's actually the sugar. No, I'm just joking. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, we have, we have uh, someone. Someone in the chat gave their interesting their take on it. So I'll just show that quickly. Yeah, yeah. So Thelema say dissertations have to be written. I guess. Uh, yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. So, you know, but what is the purpose? This is just speculation. Uh, it's got a messed up crystal Christology, which I think some of us have been saying and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't have too much on that one. It's just you know. Well, I think I largely agree with you guys. I think it misses the mark, like totally. Like it's something that <laughs> it's like way out in left field. I, I just I feel yeah. like if I had another week to contemplate it, I'd probably be able to come up with a decent steel man of what he's trying to say. Right. It's just too <laughs> obscure for my brain to like. Yeah. Not really sure what he was aiming at, other than like I try, I try to come up with something that's like different and new, you know, because rather yeah. than just saying the same things every week, so. Oh yeah, there you go. I'll, but I was I'll, definitely I'll, different and new. Well yeah, yeah. I'll I'll post for the people in the audience and for yourselves. I will post the article up on my blog for free for for people. So, oh, we got a guest here, so you guys yeah. can check that out. Uh, Priscilla, come on up. Oh, oh I just had her in. Good. Hey, Priscilla, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Good, good, good. You got a topic you'd like to discuss? Um, not necessarily. I just wanted to join. I was listening to you guys when you right. first started. And then the last thing I heard um, before entering was the whole quantum thing. Which <laughs> I guess opinion on that would be like, if, if he's going to say that about Christ, I think he kind of has to be careful with that because the same would apply to us in a sense, right? Because we too like our bodies yeah yeah absolutely and that's what that's exactly what he would say too is like yeah like this would also be 
resurrected in the same way, in the same manner, almost like we would die and then resurrect at some point. I I think, I think perhaps that's part of the straw man that I was trying to think of is in an ultimate sense, all will be resurrected. Yeah. Uh, Either, either into uh, um, entry into the family that, that adoption into sonship or else unto judgment. Um, And in some sense, all of us will be resurrected in, akin to the same way um but not all of us will be glorified and so i really don't know how far the application would go but i don't think that the causal mechanism has much difference uh like to to what like the end of the thing you know what i mean like christ's resurrection was a finality in that he's still at the right hand of the father he's not retired his body somewhere along the way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I believe he retained that and intends to do so indefinitely. And so if we're thinking about physical bodies in the same way we're thinking about physical bodies now in a universe with, you know, the the same kind of problems that we have now, I feel like, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, this is, this is one of those times when I, I really think that materialism eats itself. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like the snake curling around eating its own yes, tail. Yes, exactly. It's just it's eating itself. Yeah, it, it yeah. doesn't seem to go anywhere. Right on, right on. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, just all on a sidetrack, which is really interesting, is that there is an actual human body uh, present in heaven. You know, I think that's just really a, a cool thing that it, it's it, we're not even talking about the same dimension, but God can basically traverse dimensional barriers you know it's just it's amazing to me i don't think it would be far off to say god is the dimensional barrier <laughs> it very well could be you know and, and um, I'm, cu- I'm i'm curious actually now that that we're talking about that and you brought that up human body <laughs> in the presence of god i i'd be curious if we could play gracefully with the idea of enoch and elijah yeah are they are they not embodied? Oh, see, so you got somebody in the comments throwing that up too, Elijah yeah. and Enoch. Are they not embodied in the same way that Christ is because they didn't experience yet a resurrection? Well, heck, they didn't even really experience death either. Oh, she passed off. <laughs> oh, no, what happened? Uh, she might have got cut off. I don't know. Oh. Well, she, but, she, did, she said she didn't have any like questions or something, I don't think, right? Yeah. Okay. But if she uh, wants to come back on, we'll let her on. Yeah, of course. Oh, oh there she is. Back. I got. Oh, you got her. All right. There you go. You're there. All right. I tried to like exit the Streamyard so I can read the YouTube comments, and when I clicked like done out of Streamyard, it like just kicked me out completely. <laughs> well, oh. you, see, you oh, see on the man. right side where it says comments in private chat? You should be able to read the comments. Uh, she doesn't have that access. I don't think. I think she only has private chat uh, access. Even, uh, okay, even as a guest. Yeah. I, okay. That's yeah. It. She'd have to use. Are you using your phone? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's I'd another issue. Uh, or something. You had a laptop. You could yeah. just pull it up. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, right did, you, did you have any topics you were interested in on your end there, Priscilla? Or? Um, so last night I was watching a live and. I pointed out something very interesting because, and it's just like, I just want your opinions on it because, and it's not like a right or wrong kind of stance, but it's just like, what do you guys think about it? 
because I made the point of, well, you know, because in scripture it says that no one knows the hour, like not even Jesus, not even the son knows the hour. Mm-hmm. It does it in both Mark 24 and no, Matthew 24 and Mark 13. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of the scripture overlaps in a lot of places, if you guys have noticed, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but then somebody pointed out like how, since Jesus is God, that he has to know all things and how even the apostles like mm. went up to him and they said um, <laughs> god like or they acknowledged him as god and were like um you know all things and so it's just like how do you kind of reconcile that of like jesus does not even know the hour himself him being god but yet god knows everything mm-hmm. i'll tell you yeah so so I take the view, same view that William Lane Craig does, and some people, so I am a, a neo-Apollinarian, not an Apollinarian. I, don't accuse me of that heresy, but um, basically, so God, it's, it's an essential property to be omniscient, but what mode is that omniscience? Um, I don't think you have to be consciously omniscient necessarily as an essential feature. You can be subconsciously omniscient, right? And that's the sense during Jesus' time of humiliation, uh, and perhaps even even now, after post-ascension, maybe he still doesn't know. It's only the Father, because that hints that the Holy Spirit doesn't know either. Um, So I think that that knowledge can be subconscious. And philosophers realize, look, if you have the ability to gain the ability to do something, it's the same as having the ability, right? So Jesus, he had the power to be consciously omniscient at any time, but he has chosen, at least at the time of his incarnation, to make some of his knowledge, uh, retain it only on a subconscious level so that he doesn't know when the end of the world is. So that that would be my my answer. And I and think, then, go ahead. Uh, Philippians says too how he, you know, um, you know, he came down in the form of man, but although in the likeness of God did not count equality with the father or, you know? Yeah. So that's, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think that it's it's an interesting question. Yeah. Oh, Hey, uh, we got another guest. Go ahead, bud. Ace philosophy's on with us. How you doing, buddy? Hey, uh, I've never, I've never been on this channel before. Um, I, I I haven't I, I'm not saying this in a critical manner. I've never really watched this channel. It just kind of popped up on my YouTube, and I was like, "Hey, open mic. I'll just take a look yeah. at it." Oh, fun! And, but uh, yeah, I have a channel about uh, that kind of investigates Christianity, um, obviously philosophy, theology, things of that nature, and I am a Unitarian. I do not hold to the deity of Christ, and I think that the—I do consider myself a Christian. Obviously, I think that the Unitarian position is the correct uh, Christian position to hold, and I just feel like the verse in question is best explained by the Unitarian, uh, you know, perspective, that Jesus is not God, and that's why he doesn't know solves a lot of problems that's interesting interesting how uh, how how would that okay so 
by Unitarian, you don't mean that all three persons are one, yeah, that's... are different modes of the of of the Godhead. You're saying that Jesus isn't deified. Correct. There's only one God, Yahweh, and it's God the Father. The Holy Spirit and G well, I think the Holy Spirit that's a difficult, difficult subject. My opinion is the Holy Spirit is probably a part or aspect of God, like a, a sometimes you'll hear it described as a force of God or the active uh, influence of God, and that Jesus is a human, a human servant of God, although um, very unique in creation. And I also kind of hold to the Arian position and uh, where Arius, a lot of Unitarians do not believe in the pre-existence of Christ, but I do. I do believe Jesus Christ pre-existed his earthly, you know, incarnation. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my basic position as far as, you know, yeah, oneness, oneness and modalism I reject uh, because you have to, uh, you just have to say Jesus and the Father and the Holy Ghost are just basically different modes of one being, which I think is just refuted by countless verses in the New Testament. And um, Jesus, but Jesus and the Father are separate beings. They're not two persons in the same being. There's God who is the father and then there's Jesus Christ who is a who is a human. Okay, so so what you're saying is that he's reduced to humanity. You don't believe that he had a nature that was divine. He had a divine nature that incarnated. So um the the pre-existence question is is interesting. Uh I do believe Jesus pre-existed as a special uh, I guess a special being and then he basically took upon flesh and um, but he's not God like he's not um, he's not the supreme being of creation he's like he's almost I, I hate to use the term like an angel but he because angels are uh, I think angels are below, are below Jesus Christ but Jesus is kind of like kind of like an archangel, but even above the archangels. He's like this, the main, he's like God's, you know, perfect representation of God, but not God. So if you had so, to um, associate yourself with a part, like a specific denomination, like what do you think you would be closest to? Uh, um, really, honestly, I, I think that I'm not a Protestant. I've, I've rejected Protestantism. And I have rejected Roman Catholicism. I don't know a whole lot about Eastern Orthodox, but um, they're definitely I do Trinitarians. I would yeah, yeah. I, I imagine I would have some disagreements with them as well. Um, it sounds like the the closest thing to what you're describing is along the lines of the Jehovah, yeah, JW Jehovah's Witnesses, because they believe that Jesus is ultimately the Archangel Michael. And also, who is God's, let's say, God's yeah, I, highest angel representative, somewhat, whatever you want to, however you want to parse that out, would be something along the lines of the closest thing to a highest representative for God who isn't God becoming uh, incarnate 
and doing whatever perfected work under the law and so forth. Yeah, that's that's about right, except I'm not a Jehovah's Witness and I disagree that Jesus is the is the Archangel Michael. So I'm uh, I'm fairly familiar with Jehovah's Witness uh, theology and the history of that of that organization. And I, I do think it's a, a false non, you know, ultimately non-Christian cult. But I there, I guess there are areas of overlap uh, because they are they are Unitarians. So I guess that's something I have in common with them. But I disagree on some of the specifics. Excuse me. Um, yeah, I just think when you, when you, when you go back to the earliest teachings of, of Christianity, and, and I hate to, I hate to say it this way before it got kind of distorted, uh, by some of the early, you know, Christian theologians and councils and things like that. I really do think that if you look really, really close to the origin of Christianity, it, it was a Unitarian they taught Unitarianism or, or what would be called subordinationism. Um, and that's kind of where, where, what I hold that Jesus is a subordinate ontologically subordinate being to the father. I just think it's you know, the, the best thing to align with what is taught in, in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles teachings. I, I, I would I would de I would definitely recommend looking into orthodoxy. We have an episode that we did recently. Dale did uh, with a, uh, a, a person who's a uh, doctorate who wrote his uh, I believe he wrote his his his, uh, his doctorate uh, dissertation on the Trinity in the view of the Eastern Church. And they have a uh, relatively fundamentally different view of the Trinity from the West. And I feel like it might help give language to what you're trying to describe without having to fall into a camp that's been traditionally considered heresy. Um, I think that it might actually give, let's say some body to, without the pun, give body to the, the idea that you're trying to articulate there, which is that he's not an angel, he's something else, but he's not the father. And I think we all agree with that. I just think that you're going a step further than most people in the West are willing to take that step. And the East are willing to say, in some sense, that there is a hierarchy or pecking order within the Trinity itself while still remaining a Trinity. They believe that the Father is God, let's say, and that the Son and the Spirit are ever proceeding from the Father, who is the one God. And so I think, I think what you're describing is probably something that could map relatively onto the Eastern view of the Trinity. Um, but it would, it would require, um, let's say a, a change in vocabulary and a, and a subtle change in the rejection of Jesus being deified, but they don't, they don't, they would, they would say that Jesus is definitely not the father and that the father is singularly the God capital G in that sense. So it doesn't sound like you're far off from orthodoxy in the eastern sense uh other than the rejection like the the overt rejection of of jesus being uh deity and jesus being god i would definitely recommend looking into that um the doctor's name was bo branson, bo branson yeah. um bo branson. and that episode was only a few weeks ago so if it's of interest to you i would definitely recommend that that episode it was really really thorough dale did a great job uh bringing out some of the nuances in that and answering his own side and all that so um, but, but yeah, as, as far as, as far as Priscilla's question about the Jesus being human and being God and the problem of omniscience, I would tally omniscience to the same exact problem you would have with hunger and sleep. God needs nothing, including food, 
air, any of those things. Being embodied in the human platform has certain entailments, has certain implications. You will need air. You will need water. You will need food. You will need shelter. You will need emotional stability of some sort. You will need rationality. You will need a lot of different things that God in himself does not require any of these external goods to sustain himself. And yet Jesus emptied himself insofar as he became human. And in the same sense that Jesus required sleep or food, he also required learning. He also required favor among men. And the scripture says that he grew in favor uh, with, with God and men and that he grew in stature and in, in understanding. And so God is does not require a thing, right? Like there's no thing that God requires. And the fact that Jesus being embodied in the human platform had requirements, I don't think is a discrediting to the claim of his deity, but is a direct answer in the most fundamental sense, in the simplest sense, for why he as a human would not be omniscient. He as God is omniscient. He as a human yeah. does not, it, does, it just doesn't obtain. You see what I'm saying? And so in the same sense that Jesus needs to sleep, Jesus doesn't know the day or the hour. Right. Yeah, because he's exactly what I was going to say. You said it better than me. (laughs) Oh, hogwash. (laughs) Priscilla? Go ahead, ahead, Priscilla. Oh, no, I was just saying, um, yeah, ultimately, I think that's what it comes down to because he was um, both 100% God and 100% human. And so I think um, the way you explained it was very articulate and very well. I personally tend to stay away from using uh, the analogy of a percentage because it gives people a wrong implication about some kind of like you're trying to pack something into a container of some sort. Um, so how would you? In, word it? He would- I, I, I would say Jesus is completely or totally. I, it's just a semantic difference, but I think it illustrates something different. If you said Jesus is holy God or completely God or in no sense is not God, right? Like to avoid just percent, a lot of the time, especially in the Protestant world, we've gotten very technical. And so we tend to view things like a math problem. And I think that that's a breeding ground for error in a really unique way. And so I just avoid using percentages and numerical values when it comes to things in theology, simply because I think that it ends up being a confusion rather than a help. I would say Jesus is totally God, completely God rather than a percentage of 100%. Because fitting 200% of something in something seems a little contradictory. And it's just, it's too low hanging of fruit. You know what I mean? For sure. See, here's the thing. I don't, so you say Jesus is completely and holy God. Mm -hmm. I guess you also believe that Jesus is completely and holy man? Yes. Yes, so you, because so you he was hold, embodied you hold, in the, you hold to the you hold to the t- dual nature of Christ's uh, position. Yes, the hypostasis. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, and again, I don't come on to just argue with people, but I I do have a a very serious problem with that uh, that doctrine, the hypostatic union. Okay, and I I, I do feel like it was something that was. Uh, a, a a philosophical concept that doesn't work created by one of these um, early councils that 
they 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 it's not necessarily really scriptural or or logical it's just something that they were trying to explain some things in the bible so they made up a concept it's like it'd be like the the theological equivalent of of dark energy it's like we don't really it's the, the word is just a placeholder for lack of knowledge and i feel like the same thing for the hypostatic union it's just like a phrase that was created to try to cover over problems they were having explaining aspects of Christology. And I, I think when you when you look at it, it, it doesn't really work. It doesn't make sense in a lot of ways. Can I, um, oh, go ahead, well, because it's showing that God came down in the form of man to, you know, deliver us from our sinful nature and um you know died resurrected well, you, the the yeah but you you built your conclusion into your uh proposition you said god came down to become a man to, well then you just built your conclusion into your, your premise your premise so did but the, the question is did god come down to become a man and, I think that's uh, derivative from John chapter one. Yeah. Ultimately, that's where most of this comes from, is that John began his gospel with a theological declaration rather than Mary was espoused to a man named Joseph, so forth. And the the narrative of Jesus's birth, particularly John goes way beyond that in his immediate opening is actually the logos, the word of God, the rationality or understanding of God himself became tabernacled among us and that the same was there in the beginning there was nothing made that was not made by him him being the word and so it's rather conclusive that either jesus is the creator and not god whatever that would mean or jesus is the creator and that means that he is with god and was god and i i, I think the explicit length that john was willing to go in the opening of that chapter is enough credence to think that just because they didn't have an articulate formulation of what it would look like for man to share manhood with deity i don't i don't think that that simply means that they made up a doctrine later they did make up a way to articulate the doctrine but i don't think that the doctrine you wouldn't need to make up an articulation for something that didn't exist. They had this doctrine already and were seeking to articulate it more fully because of the fact that there were other competing ideas that were emerging at the time. Yeah. And that's um, the same thing like with the, the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, like people say that, that it was invented then, but the term was just created, but the concept itself ha had always, always existed. Um, I have I have two questions. Yeah, let Dale. Let's let Dale in for a second here. He's been wanting to say something. Okay, well, well, just before before I get off track, though, um, Ace Philosophy, do you have anything just to say in response to Josh or Priscilla? And then I I have a couple questions for you on this. Yeah, I I, I do. I, I'd like to respond to that, but it doesn't matter if I go before you or or, or whatever. I can I can wait and and hold sure. off and see what you have to say if you prefer to say something. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Cool. So just two simple questions so first thing i want to do uh let, let's put to one side the question of did jesus incarnate for a second and just the because you're you're into philosophy i see so in terms of the coherence of having two natures i in terms of the semantics i think priscilla's right to say it's 100 god 100 uh, human or if you want to say total or complete it's it's all the same thing 
because what we're saying is philosophically jesus had two kind natures he had a kind a human kind nature and he had a divine kind nature what is a kind nature it just means you have all of the essential properties of that kind of thing and jesus didn't in his incarnation he didn't lose any of the essential divine properties that's what i would say um in, including in 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 the fact that he wasn't consciously omniscient that that's just a change in the mode but he kept the property of being omniscient um so and he, then he acquired all the essential properties of being a human kind of thing and i have my notion of what that is but just in general under that understanding of what we're saying philosophically would you at least say that well that is coherent i don't know whether it's true or not but that is coherent to say that much I think that there are logical contradictions there. And first of all, I, I think I think the, the the first problem is that a single being can have more than one nature. So I think that Jesus either was God or was a human. You can't be both. Um, and obviously, the idea that Jesus is God is very problematic for a human being, because as has been discussed, human beings undergo change, they are transient, they are they lack the omni qualities of God. Uh, so I just feel like it's just much easier to say that Jesus was a human who was revealed knowledge and empowered by God, as opposed to saying Jesus is God. All right, cool. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and that was just a question. Uh, all right, cool. So I, I would agree with you. I'll say I would agree with you. Um, if the things that you, the properties that you are assuming, you're assuming are essential to the human nature and divine nature respectively, but that's where I disagree. I, I would disagree as to what the human nature is. And that's why I don't see a contradiction there, but okay, cool. Fair enough. Thank you for your answer on that. Okay. Now let's get to the question that Josh and Priscilla were asking you. Okay. Well, but did god actually become uh incarnate and, and do this thing or not well actually i also wanted to th um but um what bible version do you use me or uh well i i um in terms of the translations that are you talking about translations King james and yeah. esv like I, yeah, use I, re I read i think that they 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 all need to be read because uh I don't I think any trans any translation is perfect, so yeah. I read them all to get a better idea of the underlying Greek, and, and I don't know Hebrew, but um, I feel like when you read them all, you get a better idea of what the underlying terms and phrases might actually mean. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the English translations can be trusted just because we have so many scholars that have already done the... Um, dirty work behind the scenes, so to speak, like for the Greek and the Hebrew. And so I just read um, whichever one I feel um, it's just, it's, it's really just down to preference um, when it comes to the English version. But I do what you do as well to where you said you get like a couple versions that you kind of use to compare. And that's always a good thing to do as well. Yeah, I, my, the ones I read the most are the NASB, the NIV and the KJV. Those are the ones that I read the most, and I kind of I'll read them all three at the same time. And there are a lot of 
differences. Uh, obviously, there's they're similar, but where mm -hmm. there are differences, it it kind of gives me an idea of what you know the scholars think that the various shades of meaning could put and could mean could be. Yeah, the meaning. So I don't hold to any of them. You know, same um, throughout the different translations. For me personally, is what I've seen with that. But uh, Josh, did you want to add anything or say anything? Um, I, I, the only thing that I would add is the conversation we're having now in my mind gives pretty good credence to maintaining a monolithic church tradition because we're, the, the, it's, it's really easy to go off the cliff when there's no guardrails. And so understanding the utility of having a centralized church authority and things like councils and the way that the church has behaved throughout the centuries, I think is a safeguard against the controversy of nah uh uh-huh nah -uh, that inevitably is going to devolve into with most of the conversations like this one it's very difficult because we're all relatively passionate but also convinced and we're all relying upon scholars who read languages that we honestly don't um, which is why i admire uh, one of our co-hosts tyler fowler for going out of his way to learn how to to read and write greek so that he didn't he eliminated one of those translative issues uh, for himself in a really very practical way. Um, but I, I, I admire the, let's say the boldness and the gall to come onto a channel of people who are obviously Trinitarian and, and offer a couple of challenging questions. So, um, I, I, good on you for that. But, um, I have to say, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not necessarily moved, um, by some of the objections that you brought, particularly the one that was basically your objection was exactly my explanation of why Jesus's omniscience wouldn't be a problem. And I just don't see that as a problem. I see that as a solution for the problem that Jesus was made man. Right. Well, let me, um, well, let me ask you this then. If G so in, in the incarnation, Jesus mm -hmm. has to be holy God and holy man, according to your word. He is, right? he is, he is by nature, both of those things. Yes. Okay. Simultaneously. Correct. So one of the one of the uh, attributes of of God is omniscience, correct? Yes. So he he retains that quality at, during the incarnation, correct? He, re, he his deity retains that quality. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, he 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 is deity at, at all times. So he's he also humanity. Well, he, he well, okay. That's that's fine. But his his deity is in operation while. He's a human, so if he should retain his omniscience during the incarnation, logically. I mean, we, we can assert that, but I just don't think that it falls anywhere. Okay, well, if he doesn't know something, then he's not omniscient. Well, or he's human. I like the same thing with um, sinning, like, because as humans, by nature, we just sin. And um, Jesus was human, but he did not sin, but that was because he was ultimately God as well. Well, again, you're, that's, that's uh, really concepts that are not taught by the Bible. Those are taught by uh, later theologians. The Bible does teach humans are capable of obeying the will of God uh, yeah. to the fullest extent. Well, no, I, um, we all fall short, you know, of we all fall short, but we're not. That doesn't mean we are necessarily inherently uh, short. We not we have 
we have fallen short, but we can attain to a state of, of perfect holiness. And the, the Bible teaches that's, this yeah, a number the, of people attain the, to this level. That's the beauty of the gospel is that we cannot obtain perfection. We, you know, will never. And that's where Jesus comes in. And, you know, um, God was or God is. Um, so where does the where does the where does Jesus teach we, we can't attain? Where do the prophets or Jesus teach we can't attain perfection? I'm honestly not great at memorizing scriptures. Do well, I, I, I've looked at it. It's not there. It's just not there. The well, Bible says there are righteous I agree people. with A's philosophy on this. Like, I, like I have 100% <coughs> knowledge that one plus one equals two. My knowledge is exactly the same as God's. Like, I don't, I don't believe in this. Oh, there's this mystical barrier. I, I do think that we will just, as a matter of fact, never be omniscient. I don't think creatures can be omniscient. Um, but that's... <laughs> That's between the creator and creation. Um, but it sounds like, you know, even orthodoxy might be a good fit for you because they do have a lot of mysticism and things that, you know, are, are to them, it, they're just simply not revealed and um, just... For we, me or for who? Well, let me, let me clarify a little bit. When I say humans can be perfect... What I mean is we can be as righteous as necessary to uh, attain to our own self, our own salvation. That's what I, we can't be as perfect as God, but we can be perfect as far as, you know, a human level is what I believe. Okay. So I want to ask you, <laughs> what do you, what do what do you, why do you believe Jesus died for? Uh, Jesus, Jesus died. That was part of his uh, messianic role was to come to teach the, the gospel. And as a result of that, he was put to death. So to become a human, he, he had to die, but he had to become a human to to walk among us and um, live amongst us. And that necessarily meant that he was going to die, which happened to be by crucifixion. So that's why Jesus died because he became a human. All right. Neil, you have trouble with your microphone? <laughs> yeah, no, I, like I said, I, had, I, I just want to ask my second question. This will be the last thing for me on, on this topic kind of thing. But um, okay, cool. So looking at that, that question, you guys have been going back and forth about does the Bible actually teach this and stuff? And just a general question for you. Are, are you familiar with Richard Bauckham's work on the divine identity thesis? Because this is something that I'm really convinced by. I think, you know, in the first century, the Bible, it's not talking about what is God philosophically. It's looking at, well, who is God? God, Yahweh is a divine identity. And Richard Bauckham argues that there are certain uh, Yahweh identifying features, things that are unique to identifying Yahweh. You know, so only Yahweh is the creator or the sustainer of the universe. Only Yahweh can be worshipped. Uh, that's, you know, cultic monotheism or uh, stuff, stuff of this nature. So the surprising thing is that Richard Bauckham argues, well, Jesus shares in this divine identity. He, he's being worshipped. He's uh, said to be associated with creation and, and stuff like that. So... Yeah, are, are you familiar with Richard Bauckham's divine identity thesis and like what's your general take on some of these 
verses that seem to associate Jesus with the Yahweh identity. Honestly, I'm not familiar with Richard Bauckham. Uh, I, I, that's not a criticism of him. I just, I have not looked at his work, so I can't speak to it. But um, Jesus, uh, first of all, you have to realize that uh, I do believe Jesus is, is divine, but there, I do hold a difference between divine and God. So like the angels are divine. And I guess you could say that there are different levels of uh, the hierarchy, uh, you know, in, in in heaven or whatever, where God, God and the angels are. Obviously, God is at the, at the top. And then he has his the archangels and the angels and, and Jesus is up there with God. Um, but so people get confused by these claims Jesus makes, which um, kind of almost make it seem like he's God. But if you look, I think if you look closely, what he's claiming is that he's uh, basically a, a perfect servant of God who came to earth to perfectly do God's will because that that's his role. So I think people get confused by that and they think Jesus is claiming to be God when he's really not. I really don't think that Jesus is, is uh, teaches that he is God anywhere in the, in the Bible, as far as we can see. Awesome. Thank, yeah, thank you so much for answering that. So, yeah, that that's it from me. Um, I do see that we have the vulture in the audience. He was another one who wants to ask a question about Bible codes, but he said he'll be back in about twenty minutes. Yeah. So I'm going to go then with my with my challenges here as well. Um, I, I didn't hear you give a proper uh, defense of John one one, um, a response to it anyway. Uh, but I do have another question for you. Um, the question is about uh, the apostolic fathers that you brought up that, you know, the earliest Christians weren't practicing that. Um, I don't know if you're aware of Polycarp, uh, who was John's disciple, in which he blatantly says, who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. Um, you, you know, it, he, I, I have a, a hundred and one lists of church fathers quoting uh, equality um that jesus is is god um also i don't know what you do with things like um john 12 41 um isaiah when jesus says isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him when did isaiah see him he's we're talking about the throne room in isaiah chapter 6 so if you look at verse 40 this uh, uh, verse 40 is a quote when Isaiah sees and is with him in the throne room. It was Yahweh that appeared to Isaiah. The person he saw on the throne in heaven is expressly so called in Isaiah 6, 5 through 8 and Isaiah 6, 11. Um, Yahweh, I mean, it's equally clear. So from the New Testament um that Isaiah saw Christ is, is basically what he's saying. And that's what Jesus is referring to in Isaiah uh, 1241 here. So, I mean, the, just stuff like that. And, and, you know, even the first chapter of Mark is talking about, is quoting Yahweh passages. So, I mean, I, I, for me, I, I don't find the Unitarian position very convincing based off those matters, but um, I do want to know what you do with verses like that. So what was the, the first one was John? Well, the, uh, first thing you the first thing you mentioned was the, the church Polycarp. fathers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 
the church fathers are, are are interesting and we we should look to them we have to acknowledge they're they're fallible and thus capable of making mistakes one thing you have to realize about the time frame in which these early church fathers were operating is that and this kind of speaks to john 1 1 the greek word for god is theos and i'm you've probably heard this argument before but nevertheless i'll put it forward Theos, uh, that, that was a time when polytheism was actually the norm. And some of this, unfortunately, trickled into uh, Christian writings where people were applying the term theos to, uh, to, to beings who were, who in their own, even in their own minds, were not the ultimate uh, creator being. So they would turn they would apply the term theos to like divine beings, kind of like how I'm not saying they were polytheists, but it's kind of like how the Greek polytheists would call more than one being theos, and even in, in their pantheon, some gods were higher than others. And when you look at some of these early church fathers, many of them were converts to the faith from from Greek philosophy and theology. And I think that explains a lot of what's going on there with them. That, um, and I do actually think that that could potentially explain what's going on in John one one because some I, I have seen indications that these church fathers were were quoting were, were using uh, arguments like this where uh, they, like the father is the is theos. But Jesus is also Theos, but he's not like Theos, Theos. He's like a subordinate Theos. So yeah, but how do you come to that conclusion when the end of the prologue in verse uh, eighteen talks about the monogamous Theos? I mean, that's that's as clear as day. You can't can't get past that. Where is Greek. it? In John, in the end of his prologue in John chapter one, verse eighteen, in the Greek. Monogamous theos is the word used. So, uh, well, I mean, there's no escaping that. The term (laughs) monogamous is interesting because it means uniquely begotten. And well, yeah, but you know, the scholarship on that is also says it could be the unique God. You know, that's that's what the whole argument is. Well, ganes does mean generated, so it it does it, it does entail that idea of being begotten or generated or created. So well, let me let be. me let me grant you that if because it means begotten. Beavers beget beavers and humans beget humans. What does God beget? I mean, I guess you want me to say gods or a god or, or, god. or, or yeah, exactly himself. I mean, I I just don't see that that changes anything about David's argument is all I'm pointing out. Well, for something to be begotten, that that would also create problems for one of the qualities of God, which is eter- eternality. So, and also that well, would you be, already, but you already conceded that Jesus is preeminent and preexistent. So I don't think that's an issue for anybody here. Yeah. But Jesus can be preeminent, preexistent, but also subordinate and ontologically inferior to God. Sure. I don't agree. I don't disagree with that at all, as, but I don't, I don't think that that disqualifies him from being a part of the Godhead in the way that you're asserting. Well, it kind of does because it means that there is a, 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 one of the things about the Trinity is that you have to all the the triune mem- persons in within the Trinity have to be co-equal in their ontology and their nature. 
This is why I pointed out the Eastern version of the Trinity. That's that's uniquely a Western view. Well, I honestly, I have a hard time. Ex I guess this is kind of going back to what I was saying, which is that this term theos, uh, I think it creates some confusion when it's translated in English because it's not when, when, when English people use the word God, it's like the ultimate, ultimate being that's uh, more powerful than all the other beings in the universe. Yeah, usually a reference to the creator. Right. So for but John one, be, John one credits the word as being the creator and says the word is the one who tab tabernacled among us. So we're back to the John one. So what, what you have is a and I'm not criticizing this view necessarily, but what you have is a, a trinity of gods with one or more of these gods being ontologically subordinate or inferior to the others or, or, or more than or, or at least one. So. I just don't think that's a, a proper view of a tenable view of God. Because I, I, none of us here have asserted that God is three gods. Well, even within even within the Godhead, if you if they're all the same being, this is why logically the, the church debated this for so long. They they had to flesh out how there could be a being that was one being, but with more than more than one pe persons within it. And they're ontologically uh of of different natures and i don't think they ever really figured out how to square the circle the, the, the roman catholics went one way and it appears the east orthodox church went the other way and i don't think either one of them got it right because what they were trying to do was trying to make jesus part of the godhead when that should have never happened well that's that but that's that's what we're trying to figure out is how would you respond to john who made the assertion that jesus the word was yeah. the creator and, there and, in the beginning with and was God. Yeah, I just wanted to, to come in and say, like, I, yeah, I hear you about the early church fathers. Yeah, there are some things that they say. But, I mean, you're, you're talking about a guy, and I gave you the earliest one, um, which is a direct link. They're apostolic fathers. They're not just church fathers. This is an apostolic father that uh, was discipled by John himself that are making these type of claims. So, I mean, that that's a little bit more weighty when you have to actually think about it. And, um, yeah, I would just uh, I would just part with that. Also, just 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 for your own entertainment, uh, me and Tyler both uh, argued this with the Greek. I'm sorry, I'm a little rusty. I have my notes over here, but, you know, it's not in the order of the debate I, I was having with uh, with our Unitarian friends, Brad and Seamus. We actually have on this channel in the archives. You can either look at uh, CSG's archive or you can look at PRA uh, archive here on this show and actually see the debate where we debate alternate media on this topic. And it was Brad and, uh, Seamus. and yeah. uh, Josh actually hosted it. And it was me and Tyler versus Brad and Seamus. It's actually a really good discussion. We had a lot of fun. Um, and, and I hope you had fun just doing this. This is, uh, I, this is what we love. We love just having these type of conversations. Even if we don't agree at the end of the day, we have these conversations to have these conversations. We love to have them and we love to have guys like you on uh, Ace Philosophy and, and Priscilla and, and Josh and, you know, all of us. We just love to have these type of conversations because we're all theology nerds so and philosophy nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it would be beneficial to see. I, I actually come at this from a uh, more in, in, in scholarship. It's called like the neo-orthodox position where I'm willing to kind of question some of the aspects of Christianity that uh, 
you know, a lot of the churches don't want to like um, dogmas, uh, the dogmas, but um, I, I would call them presuppositions. Uh, for instance, well, let's just take the, the church fathers. I mean, first of all, they, they are capable of all the church fathers got things wrong. No one denies that. They said things that weren't true um, according to like what Christ taught. And, and we, we know they aren't like consistent with, I guess, call it Orthodox Christianity or whatever you want to call it. So we have to recognize that they were making mistakes. Uh, but also they're, and this is true of Polycarp as well. And I don't just say this to be dismissive of your point. Their, their works were manipulated quite significantly. And we know that there were edits made and, and, and distortions, manipulations. So sometimes the church follows, you got to be really careful with them because yeah. One thing you gotta ask is how is whether their works were manipulated in, in these ways to kind of A's, A's. I you know I'm a I'm I'm a, a student in the patristics and I've also you know I'm I'm uh, I'm getting my degree in in this stuff as well. Um, I would only cite you a source that wasn't tampered with. I would never cite you a source that is questioned in that aspect. Well, I I would yeah. say this. I'm I'm fairly certain that scholars are agree that there is some level of uh, manipulation in the epistle of polycarp and the only one we have is the... oh oh oh, oh yeah yeah uh, agreed there is some and you can recognize where that is yeah I, no 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 doubt i'm i was giving you I, I would only give you ones that weren't that aren't in question well here's the, the majority question. of the the scholars would agree it, but we the only existing uh copies we have of, of polycarp i think um have these well-known uh, manipulations or whatever you want to call them, interpolations, whatever you want to say. And it leaves us to ask like what other parts of it might also be manipulated that aren't quite as obvious as the ones that are easily identifiable. So I'm not saying it's, it's manipulated, it's manipulated, but I, I just have, I'm hesitant to, to really hang my hat on the fathers. because I know this is something that was happening with what they wrote. Okay. Uh, all right. You know, um, honestly, I, I think this is a topic we could develop yeah. a lot more. We're getting kind of bogged down right now, so it'd yeah. be a good time to transition. Yeah, we're about but to. If, yeah, so about to if, if you want to talk more about this, uh, Ace, I would be more than willing to discuss further, but I don't think we even have to go as far as the church fathers to yeah. get something yeah. that would need direct in, uh, interaction from somebody like you with the assertions you're making. I think that if you want to have a conversation specifically on John chapter one, it would be a really fruitful time as long as we can stay as respectful as we've been this whole interaction. Cause I really enjoyed you this whole time. I really, yeah. yeah. You've been, you've been a Absolutely. brave sucker to come on here and drop <laughs> some of the objections you're making. I really admire that. I yeah. think that's so and, strong. You know, when, whenever, and if you want to stay in contact with us, you, you know, our email is plastered all over the place. Um, and we can do a future show together on any topic you'd like as well. So, all right, yeah, I was thinking about uh, heading out. I do have to leave, but I, I appreciate you all having me on and allowing me to express myself. Um, absolutely. Thank you for time. doing so. Yeah, thank you for coming on. It's an honor. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Until next time. All right, buddy. Bye. Take care. All right, yeah, and cool. So moving on, um, we, do have, we did have an audience question. This was someone, uh, The Vulture. He's a fan of our shows, and he requested – to do this show he was in the audience but it looks like he's gone so um maybe i'll just kick us off 
just in case he's not able to come. Oh, uh, yes, he's okay. So Vulture, here's the link to join and ask your question, and we can spend about 20 minutes or so on your issues. So just click the link, and then you can join. But yeah, just while he's uh, clicking on that. Um, basically, so the, David is someone who, the Vulture's been on the show before. Specifically, his interest, he was a former atheist, and he became a Christian by being convinced by Bible codes. So uh, these are kind of like numerical patterns, and specifically the King James Version of the Bible. Oh, here he is, so he can explain himself. Hey, David, how's it uh, or Hey, David, how's it going? You're muted. Don't want to talk to me? Fine, okay. <laughs> you see the mute button on the bottom? Yeah, but, he, you know, A, A, A did show a lot of courage coming on and, and challenging you know that I mean that was pretty wild. You know, and he was so, really was respectful too. Yeah, I really, I really liked that absolutely. he was level the whole time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. These are the type of conversations we love to have. You know. Yeah, I hope I didn't uh, commandeer so, that one too much. I, no, I just, no, you did fine, man. That was a particular interest to me. <laughs> yeah, you did fine. I, I hope I, I didn't just like jumble my words. <laughs> All right, so Vulture, are you unable to mute? Just let us know what's going on in the private chat. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah, I was having some issues connecting. All right, cool. So, so yeah, obviously, I was telling the audience here you are interested in Bible codes. Um, so, again, we we do want to be respectful and not monopolize one topic for the entire show. But yeah, like take maybe five minutes or six minutes or so, and just kind of explain what are some of these Bible codes that you find convincing. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I believe that the King James Bible is absolutely perfect from God. Uh, give me just one second here. And there's the dead space. Well, that's there you go. That's, okay, sorry that's about timing. That. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, David, and then yeah. Okay, we'll... sorry about that. Uh, yes, okay. So I believe that the King James Bible is perfect and given to us from God. I believe that He's revealed to me that there is a certain mathematical structure to it. Uh, an interesting thing that I wanted to share is with the word truth. Uh, the word truth actually occurs 235 times in the King James Bible. And that's significant because the square root of 235 is 15.32. All forms of the word preach occurs 153 times, and the word scripture occurs 32 times. That's actually uh, the word scripture itself. Uh, as far as the number 15 itself 15 of course is 5 plus 5 plus 5 and that's interesting because if you look the word christ actually occurs 555 times in the king james bible all forms of the word lov like love lov uh, is 555 times 
all forms of the word die, D-I-E, is 555 times. And all forms of the word righteous occurs 555 times. And if you take the square root of 555, you'll get 23.5. So some people might think this is an accident, a coincidence. I don't personally believe in coincidences. I don't believe that a Christian who believes God is sovereign over all things should believe in coincidence. So when you see something like this, you have to either believe that this is from God as evidence that the King James Bible itself is perfect, or you have to have some other explanation. And I just simply don't believe that. I can't believe that. This is just one example here. Uh, if you actually search for all forms of the word truth, not just truth, but all forms of the word truth, you'll get 237 or 237, I should say. And that's interesting because the square root of 237 is 15.39. So you actually have 153 again. And you have 39. There's 39 Old Testament books and uh, 27 New Testament books. So just as an example, the, these types of occurrences just on and on occur. And David, uh, yeah. uh, I don't know if you see one person's asking just in the audience to clarify as you're giving your case here. Which version of the King James Version? Is it the original with the Apocrypha or the altered one? No, this would be, uh, as far as these patterns go, this is the 1769 version with uh, 66 books. Okay. Okay, cool. So, yeah, wrap so up. So, my here. first question, Dave, uh, are you still going, David? Uh, you go ahead and go ahead and talk. Okay, my first question is, okay, so we know that there, there are parts when Christ's name is, is mentioned that weren't in the Greek. Would this interfere with that at all, where, like, they put the name Christ in because obviously that's who they're talking about, you know? So would that affect that, or is it just the fact that we know that it's going to, you know, that that's who it is, you know? Uh, does that play any role in in your, your mathematical conclusion here? Well, this is a pattern in the English. Now, I, I don't read Greek, and I wouldn't – I myself am not concerned with what's in the Greek. And, and you find – you'll find a certain idea that some people will tell you that there is no perfect Bible anywhere, that only the originals were inspired and everything else is simply a copy of a copy and errors may have been incurred, which – there's an implication in that idea that – if that's the case, then no one has actually seen the scriptures that I'm aware of, because I don't know where the originals are, if they're even still around. So if that's the case, no one living has actually seen the scriptures. They might have seen someone wrote a little bit of it. But if you have a document that's got mistakes in it, you're not holding the scriptures. You know, what does what does Second Timothy 3.16 say, which interestingly enough, 3.16 uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So if you don't have the scriptures, what are you looking at? So that's well, what I'm that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to get get at here in this question, uh, David, is uh, uh, and, and, you know, you kind of answered it. Are you saying that, uh, you, you know, that basically because the King James is inspired and that these guys are, are doing their translation to come up with the King James? into English that that that's where that's where you know um that's where the the magic is basically well i would say that 
the King James Bible itself is perfect from God. So if you speak okay. English, if you read English, you should use this Bible. Now, the question can come up sometimes. Well, what about people who speak other languages? I can't answer that question. This is the only information that I've been given by God. If someone else knew, you know, all information, all wisdom, all knowledge, it all comes from God. All understanding comes from God. I don't have an answer for that question. And I'm okay with that because this is what God has given me. And this is what I can give to other people. Someone else may have that answer as far as for other languages. God provides, you know, and I, and I believe that John 3.16 is true. I believe if you believe in Jesus, you are saved. So God can use anything. You know, there are people who believe in Jesus right now out there in the world carrying around NIV Bibles or, or whatever else they may have. If they believe in Jesus, they are saved. But they are reading out of a Bible that has mistakes in it. Let me uh, bring it. Oh, Priscilla. Yeah, I was just going to turn it to you to see if you had anything to say. So go I was ahead. Say, um, so... As far as God being, um, I guess, in a sense, merciful to those who don't know, and they're just walking around with like ESV and IV, um, so long as they believe they're still saved, what about the people who know that there are King James only, um, that that that's a thing, and yet they reject it? Like they they choose willingly not to read the King James version, although they know that that, that, that is an option, I guess. Um, would you say then at that point they're condemned or? The answer is always, what does the Bible say? And the Bible says that whosoever believes in Jesus, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but whoever believes in Jesus is saved. So if someone believes in Jesus, they are saved. Jesus is our salvation. Now you can be wrong about any number of things. And, you know, I don't, I don't know everything. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. So it isn't a question of, you know, did you attend this church? Did you do this? Did you do that? The question is, who do you believe Jesus is? If you believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he came and lived and was crucified for your sins and was resurrected, you truly believe in him, you are saved. That's the gospel. Okay. So can I can I ask a question about the the series of patterns that you've seen emerge from reading this particular translation of the Bible? Because I also am enamored with patterns. Um, personally, I've seen a lot of things that make it seem irre irrevocable that I believe and trust in Christ as Messiah, that he is the resurrected king of all creation. Like, I, I, I don't I don't see myself in any future sense being like, yeah, I was talked out of that. You know what I mean? So I, I admire the passion and the the confidence that you have. But I'm kind of confused about the extent to which you're willing to say this is revelatory perhaps um is it is it the case that you you believe god revealed to you personally that the king james bible was a source of these patterns and those patterns seem obviously divinely inspired to you 
and therefore you became a believer? Or are you saying that these divinely inspired patterns are in fact the means by which we should interpret the scripture? What exactly is the utility of these patterns? I myself was an atheist. I wasn't one of these atheists who say, well, you know, God may exist. I just don't have enough information or there's no evidence. I was adamant that God did not exist. I was a materialist. Uh, could even technically be considered a nihilist. I believe that you live, you die, that's the end. Everything is material. Nothing exists that isn't material. So God did not exist in my worldview. Uh, but God showed up. I didn't save myself. I didn't figure out God. It's nothing that I did. There was a point in my life where I did not believe, and then I did. And then afterwards, God, through various means, revealed that the King James Bible itself is mathematically encoded. Now, why would it be? I can't speak for God, but I do know that this, for me, serves as evidence. And it also, the word encryption comes to mind. I don't know if I'm using that correctly, but the idea is that if the King James Bible is mathematically perfect, then anything that would change it would throw off the patterns. So it's it's self-verifying in the sense that, I'll give you an example. The first verse of the King James Bible, Genesis 1-1, has 10 words. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's 10 words. The square root of 10 is 3.16, like John 3.16. If anything is changed that throws off that count, it throws off that pattern. There are 44 letters in the first verse of the King James Bible, and if I'm not mistaken, the last verse has 44 letters. The word God occurs 4,444 times in the King James Bible. So a lot of your Bibles now will have an S on the end of heavens. So not only does it change what the Bible is saying, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, but it also throws off that number count for the letters. So anything that is changed affects these patterns. And I, I cannot say anything else but what I've been shown. Now, some people may disagree with me. You know, there are even some things I expect, I expect to be laughed at. I expect to be ridiculed. And that's, I mean, I expect that from people who don't believe, you know, there are even sometimes, I mean, the word truth itself starts with the letter T that looks like a false. Now, some people may laugh at that, but it is what it is. You know, if you believe that God created everything and that God knows the future, God knew English before the world was created. He knew the structure of this Bible. He knew the structure of the English language. Why couldn't God use that for someone like me? You know, especially someone like me, I suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder and anything that can be doubted will be doubted. But I can't doubt this. This is math. There is no other way to interpret math the square root of 555 will always be 23.5. There's no question there. The only question is, how did this structure get into the Bible? And my wife once gave an example where if you try to show this to people, telling people some of the codes is like trying to explain the beach with a handful of sand. Unless you have seen, I want to say the wrong thing here, but 
there is so much more here mathematically than just what I could share in a couple of minutes. You know, this is just a small example. Uh, go uh, ahead, though. I don't want to talk. No, no, I, I want to jump in. Uh, so I want to give my own take, which you already know, David. But before I do that, we, we do have an audience. So um, I, I remember the vault, uh, David here sent me a link when he was on the show with a bunch of atheists. And yeah, you were right. They, I think they were very rude to you and stuff and the way they behaved and, and stuff like that. Um, but on the other hand, you said, yeah, you can understand how it, it might seem like a, um, uh, an, a, an absurd argument on the face of it or something. And, uh, one of our listeners who's a Christian is even kind of saying this, so that they're kind of just asking like, you know, what scriptures existed when, I guess you were talking about a specific example in Timothy, but, um, they're just saying like, look, the, the King James version that you're talking about, it didn't even exist. And you're trying to say, like, God put patterns in this. Um, wouldn't it make more sense if he made these these patterns in the originals or something like that? Um, so, yeah, did, did you want to just give, like, a brief, a brief response to this objection? Like, why did God wait 1,700 years before putting these patterns in the Bible? I would not want to answer why did God do or not do something. I wouldn't answer that because that's it's not my place to say, look, God wouldn't do this because this is what God thinks is rational. And so therefore, he wouldn't do it. I don't speak for God. Uh, what does the Bible say about the wisdom of this world? Or the wisdom, I don't want to misquote, but you know, the idea is what does God say about that? So regardless of what people think you know if if you believe that verse second timothy 3 16 is true if you believe that verse is true it says all scripture is given by inspiration of god where is the scripture because if you notice a lot of people will quote the bible to you and they don't actually believe the bible they'll tell you that there are mistakes now how they know these mistakes are there i don't know because they'll tell you they've never seen the originals yet only the originals are inspired and they'll go back to the Greek, but remember that the Greek they're looking at is not the actual original, because if it was per perfectly copied from the originals, then are they Greek onlyists? Are they telling me that the Greek Bible that they have is perfect from God? Their argument is self-refuting because you can't maintain that the Bible is simultaneously not correct and correct at the same or from God at the same time. So how do you square away the concept that? Look, the Greek says this, but also too remember that this Greek scripture is not actually perfect, and we've never seen the originals and can't even tell you what they say. But I also believe John three sixteen is true, even though I have no way to verify it. Gotcha. Okay, cool. All right. Um. Okay, cool. So I'll, I'll just kind of briefly give my take. Again, David's already heard it because I did it. We did an entire show, but I'll just briefly mention it for the audience' sake here and and get your kind of response on it. But um, so one thing, the first thing I do want to say is that I, I don't think that in principle, it's a ludicrous argument. I don't think that, uh, you know, God's supernaturally putting um, mathematical patterns in a, or numerical patterns in the Bible or in his divine revelation is just a priori absurd. I, so I would agree with David on that front um, on the question of, okay, but did he, um, I'm, I'm very skeptical about this and I, I don't think David has really proven his case. And the reason why is because 
it's not enough to just cite these example numerous examples the, these examples are found in the Quran they're found in the in the true Furkan and in other books as well I I know because I've researched this um but in order to make sense of it how, how do we know can we identify that there's an intelligent divine design behind this and on that front there is actually a straightforward mathematical formula right these are numerical patterns they can be actually statistically evaluated and i'll just share my screen here so here's where i'm kind of uh, son of a gun there we go so yeah david you'll you'll have seen this already right but you know so in order to i like william dembski's specified complexity right so specification criterion first of all you have to establish that you know why are we specifying this pat specific pattern versus another like what why is a, a word being mentioned 333 times why why are we specifying that as the pattern um and that has to be independent of discovering the pattern itself and secondly there there's this um calculation for the saturated probability so it's it's not enough there this is just no, any mathematician in the world will say this is how you calculate the odds for any pattern right so you have this p represents just the straightforward probability oh well what are the odds that i would get you know in the quran i would get a a pattern of finding a multiple of seven well it's one divided by seven that's the straightforward probability but you also have to take into account the probabilistic resources so there are specificational resources. Um, you know, why, why are we specifying seven? Maybe there are other, maybe we're also getting a hit if we specify 14 or two or three. Um, so that increases the odds. And there's also replicational resources. How many opportunities do you have to get uh, the desired result? How many times are you rolling that dice type thing? And this, as, as I mentioned to David, this is what I never see from people um, espousing the numerical patterns. And this, until I see this, that's, uh, and, I, and I see that it's a sufficiently small saturated probability, um, that's what I don't see. And that's why I, I kind of am skeptical and just hearing about, well, look, there's this amazing coincidence. Well, we have no way of adjudicating is it through random chance or is it actually intelligently designed um but yeah david so i'll shut up at this point but you you've heard me kind of say this before oh i bored priscilla she's gone okay um um what's your what's your take do you, here <laughs> oh are you okay sorry i didn't see um what what's your take on on using this uh these types of criteria because it it could be these patterns there is something to them and if you guys applied this, we can actually prove mathematically that, guess what? So, someone intelligently designed these these uh, math patterns that you guys are finding. I think um, God definitely used the King James Version to pull you into Christianity. Um, that's just something that a tool that, you know, he used um, to kind of make stand out for you. And I'm very glad that, you know, you're not atheist anymore. Um, but I think, Amen. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's just like an introduction of how God's trying to get your attention. And then perhaps you could look into other 
translations or other versions, God works in just mysterious ways that could have just been something that he was just trying to, because he knows you love the numerical problem, prob, you know, the that whole um, patterns. Patterns like that was just something he used to get your attention. And then, you know, we learn and we grow and we move away from those things. And um, I mean, if you, you know, all, all power to you, if you end up sticking with the King James Version, um, because you find that it you do like you do have a preference for it. But I think to go as far as to say it's the only correct and perfect translation. Um, I'm actually reading a book. I had put it in the StreamYard chat, but I know you, um, you guys can't see it. It's called King James Onlyism, A New Sect by James D. Price. Um, so that's a book re recommendation if you want to, um, you know, look into that and, and get that. Um, I haven't read too much, but it's really good. And it's, 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 I put, I put it in the chat just for, for the audience there. Yeah, and it's um, pretty much saying this idea of the King James Version being being this perfect, you know, um, I, I actually took notes. I'm going to. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. She froze. Uh, yeah, did. Oh, okay. Hello? Yeah, you were breaking up. Uh, sorry, I tried to exit and go to my notes because I had actually taken notes while I was reading this book. But pretty much um, the concept of the King James Version being perfect, that that it didn't arise until like the 1970s and then it didn't actually make it big or hit truly until 1980s. And it actually derived from um, Seventh-day Adventist writings. Like if you look into the history of the movement. Um, and so that's why I'm just saying just kind of be weary about that. Like the the... It's kind of just dangerous um, and just tread lightly on. Um, yeah, I, there's yeah, one thing that I wanted to. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, mine was going to piggyback off of hers, but David, if you want to go first, that's fine. And da yeah, David, don't, uh, also, if you don't mind, just briefly say, like, to what I said as well, do, do you see any merit in using these intelligent design criteria to potentially substantiate your, your beliefs there or your claims? Well, I don't know that I necessarily understand that math, Dale, so I'm not entirely certain that I could, well, not, not, I couldn't answer that, I should say. So okay. that would be for someone else. Uh, but as far as to respond to her, I find this problem a lot, and, and I, I hope this doesn't come across as ugly, but you will find that people have no problem telling you, I was reading this book written by this man, and he said this. And that's in response to me believing that the King James Bible is perfect from God. So I've now had a rebuttal to my belief in the King James Bible referencing a book written by a man. Is that book infallible? No. So why would you assume that that information is correct? That would be my question is that Tons you, of, tend, uh, you tend to... Uh, to find this type of scenario where people tend sometimes to be more interested in philosophy and scholarship as opposed to actually believing the Bible. 
Well, I, 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 to, to kind of hop in, even though I technically weren't addressing me, but I think, I think the reason why this becomes relevant is because ultimately the criteria by which we say we should or shouldn't believe something can't just be the text that we're reading. It has to be something that we apply to the text to find its veracity. Right. And so I think what, what she's talking about and what you're talking about are actually separate things. Um, but, but in terms of what, cause I, I asked a question specifically earlier was, which was basically you, you found these numerical patterns, the numerical patterns to you appeared intuitively as divine revelation. And for you, that was sufficient evidence to believe that at least the King James was inspired. And from that, you found a relationship and a belief in Christ and you consider yourself among the saved. My question was specifically about whether or not you use these patterns for a method of interpretation or whether this was something that was particular to your conversion experience and had something to do with a more privatized relational revelation rather than an outstanding relationship that ought to be shared with the church as a standard by which we could judge other things. And I think that when we start asking those questions of whether or not this is a privatized revelation that God gave so that you could convert from your atheism into the into the body and then continue to see patterns until forever and ever amen. I don't think that you're not seeing patterns. I think you are. I think the the question is whether or not those patterns can be considered an objective evidence outside of your own experience. Like Dale was saying, there has to be a standard by which we measured the the experience to the revelation to say this is the real thing irrespective of who it came to. Right? And we all admire your passion for being convinced. We're all convinced also. You know, it's just come about in different, the, the mechanism was different, let's say. But I think that I think that when she's pointing out that the idea that patterns and the King James Bible being a unique form of revelation that is uniquely inspired rather than perhaps the Greek text or things like that, in order to make the case or deny the case, you're relying upon a philosophical framework. So pointing to philosophy to say that you're doing something someone else isn't, I don't think actually cuts the mustard. I think what she's saying is that when when other people have brought forth these ideas, other people have critiqued them. And it was philosophical argumentation that anybody was using for either the rebuttal or the supportive case. So we can't just throw philosophy as though it's something that's like can be over there external somewhere else and that these numerical patterns don't have any bearing on whether or not they're accurate in order to say, what does it mean? What do we do about it? You're still going to perform some philosophical speculation. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, and this book is like not even philosophical at all. It's not his own opinions. It's not a polemics book. It's, it's very much, he uses charts. He uses tons of scholarly, like he has sources. There's, um, he compares the original 1611 to the modern. Um, he goes deep into the history of the King James and, and, you know, it's, it's a, I would say it's historical and it's, it's factual. Like these are, this book is, is filled with like he, you could tell he really put it together to kind of just I mean, it's, it's good. Like, that's all I can say is like, just recommend it. You could check it out and then read it for yourself. And if you still feel the same way, you know, that's fine. Um, but. Cool. What, 
Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, I think uh, one of our uh, host has to leave soon. So, but David, I, I want to make sure you get the last word on this before. Well, let me go. Let me go. Let, let me just give my response to, um, and it's just a piggyback is uh, for David is, is like uh, one of the biggest things that uh, God led me into was studying how the Bible was formed, how it was made and stuff like that. And some of the arguments you were making uh, really tell me that, that, you know, you haven't really dived into how the Bible came to be. You know, and that was one of my things and how the translations came to be and where they came from um, and how textual criticism has basically uh, um, get, given us so much in regards to how to understand the Greek and the scriptures and, and how to get back to the originals. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot to that. And that study was very fruitful for me in my life. So that's just a, a, a thing that I would just suggest is like, like look into that. But. I mean, yeah, don't abandon your argument. Just uh, continue with it and, and, and uh, uh, you know, um, fine-tune it to, to a degree. And I, you know, that's what I would say. There's, yeah, there's one, just a couple quick things I want to – just to steel man David's uh, mathematical argument. And then, David, I'll give you the last word, and then we can head out because Josh has got to go soon. So um, just, just one thing. Um, I don't think that necessarily – you don't have to attach this argument for the mathematical patterns to King James Version onlyism. God – I mean, everything that – you know, I agree with the, the critical take and stuff like that. I'm not a King James Version onlyist, but King James Version onlyism can be false, and there could still be these mathematical patterns in the 1769 King James Version. And exactly. And be only in that. So – his argument isn't dependent on that. Secondly, um, even if let's say it turns out we somebody does the mathematics and it turns out objectively speaking it it fails. They it we can't prove that it's not random chance. Um, David could still be warranted in believing Christianity on the basis of experiencing these patterns, which are which are there. It's it's just a question of how do we explain them. Um, and, and stuff he could have had a maybe the holy spirit used that to produce properly basic beliefs from again it grounded in the experience of reading these patterns in the bible so that was the the last two things i just wanted to steal man uh david's position but david over to you for the last word on this sure and i and i hope i hope i didn't sound rude at any point uh so to anybody if i offended anybody i hope that i didn't i don't want to sound not at all no trying to uh, present what I believe here, and here's the thing. This is, I want to say this is as best as I can, is that ultimately it doesn't matter what I say. It really doesn't. Uh, I can spend three hours, if everyone let me talk for three straight hours and told everything that I've been shown, it doesn't matter because of the fact, well, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but understanding comes from God. Faith comes from God. I did not become a Christian because of the mathematical structure of the King James Bible. Now, there may, I can't remember exactly, and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but there may have been some numerical patterns that played a role whenever I came to faith. But it wasn't that I became a Christian because of the mathematical structure of the King James Bible. I simply believed one day, and that's because of God. God gives faith. So, it wasn't, I do not believe that evidence turns someone to faith because ultimately, even if you see in the Bible, there are people that walked with Jesus 
that did not believe him. There are people who saw him do miracles and did not believe him. It's not, we do not save ourselves. We don't come to faith because we figured out God. God reveals himself to us in his own way. I'm not here to judge, you know, how, how God does that. I can only say what information that I've been given. You know, it's, it's, I'm very careful. You know, the Bible warns about philosophy. The Bible warns against certain things. I'm very careful to look at things from my own understanding and, you know, to lean on my own understanding. Things may make sense to me or to someone, I should say, but that doesn't mean that it's true. And without God showing me the truth, there's no way out of it. You know, there's, there's no way out of skepticism. There's no way out of sin unless God saves you from it. So when you talk to an atheist, you know, I've seen several people debate atheists. And these atheists do not have an evidence problem necessarily. They just simply don't believe. Amen. And it doesn't matter what they see. An angel could literally appear to some of these people. And if they wanted to possibly, or if they were unable to come to faith, they would find a way to excuse it away. So evidence doesn't really do anything that I've personally found. Uh, Dale even saw a show once where I talked to some atheists yeah. and it was ugly. And I run into the same problem where I can share this with people who, who are Christians, who are believers of their own admission, and they don't believe me. And all I can do is give the information and move on. That's all that I can do. You know, I, I can give the information to people if they're interested in it. I can tell them. And that's all that I can do. That's all that I have. But it's God ultimately that gives understanding. But I'll leave it at that. Right on. Well, hey, man, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. I mean, uh, it's pretty interesting. I, I, you know, I would love to to hear hear your progress as you continue to study it. So I'd love to, you know, you to stay in contact with us and uh, come back on sometime uh, when you got even more to present. So that would be cool. Um, but yeah, guys, we're at the two hour mark. We're going to cut it off here. Uh, I think, yeah, I think we're, we're done. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, everybody here, thanks for coming on. Um, uh, BJ catch the next one, brother. BJ Allen wanted to come on, but, uh, um, catch the next one. We're going to start doing these once a month again. So we'll, uh, we'll definitely get, get you back on for that if you want to come on. Um, but anyways, uh, next week, debate between me and Luis Dizon. Um, stay tuned for that. It's going to be on the intercession of the saints. Um, guys, anything you want to plug? Check Priscilla out on TikTok. She's got a lot of good videos. Oh, uh, yeah. I was going to oh, go, go ahead, Priscilla. Um, no, I was just going to say I love, you know, being able to join again tonight. And Philosophy and Vulture, both of them, they were really um good they i just it tonight was good right on thanks for coming on josh um next monday on csg complete sinner's guide i'm going to be talking to our friend dane von ace about the potential death of a materialistic worldview in the modern world right now and seeing the way that our desire to see beauty and truth is not compatible with an explicitly materialist or naturalistic worldview and that 
I don't think that that worldview is going to be on the market in the next, let's say, 50 to 60 years. And I intend to talk to our friend Dane about uh, why that is. And if that interests anybody, uh, especially in lieu of the discussion we had tonight, um, I would really uh, appreciate anybody tuning in and um, checking that out on the, the Complete Sinner's Guide on Monday. All right, Dale. Yeah, nothing to Like I said, the, my only show coming up is uh, the one with you. Uh, the debate between you and Lewis uh, on the intercession of the Saints. I might, uh, we'll see what happens. There might be a show with Omar on the moral argument um, just because I want to take August off. So I'm going to see if I can get that done in the next couple weeks. But other than that, no, it's just faith on altered shows and then uh, looking forward to my vacation. Right on. Well, guys, again, thanks for joining us. All of, all of you that have uh, stuck it out these last two hours, we had a great conversations. Um, remember, we're going to be doing these open mic nights uh, periodically. So um, whenever you see it advertised, uh, jump on and, and click the link and you'll be uploaded right to the stream. So until then, guys, good night. God bless. And as Tyler says, stay like Christ. Christ.